Our second lesson this morning comes from Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. There rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I have commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, thank you for your presence. Thank you that you are near and you are close in the moments we feel it and the moments we don't. And I ask you this morning that you would speak to us, your people. Thank you that you have a word for us. Thank you for how you shape us by scripture. Thank you for how you continually form us in the Holy Spirit. And may we see what it means to be shaped by scripture and to put our hope in you, Jesus. Amen. Hey, good morning all. My name is Chris Tuttle. I am a pastoral resident here on staff at Christ the King, and uh, I think I say this every week, but I hope by this point you believe me. I am deeply grateful that we get to worship together every single Sunday morning. Last week, Ashley introduced us to our uh, sermon series, if you will, um, and and we're going to be going over that the next few months. So as Anglicans, uh, we preach from the lectionary which were a text pre-assigned for each day of the year. So we don't usually do sermon series a lot or really ever, uh, but for a lot of us, that's super familiar to us. So we're not going to be deviating from the lectionary text over the next few months, but as a church, we're embarking on a journey together, learning about what it means to be a church committed to the three streams. Those streams are being shaped by Scripture, led by the Spirit, and strengthened by the sacraments. So for some of us who've been Anglican for a long time, I think that might be really familiar language to you. But for some of you, like me, who are pretty new, uh, that is not familiar or immediately intuitive to what it actually means to be a three-streamed church. 
So being a church that is growing and developing and being formed into an Anglican presence in Northwest Arkansas, it'd probably be really good for us to get on the same page about what in the world are the three streams of Anglicanism. In short, the three streams are a historical view of what it means to be Anglican. So it, it is how God has formed and led the Anglican church to move and grow over the last 500 plus years, mixing all those components at different times of history to get where we are now. So the Anglican Church started in the 1500s from a split from the Catholic Church. Uh, We seriously don't have time to go into that this morning. But as the Anglican Church branched into a different way of following Jesus, the first strand of Anglicanism was birthed, the Protestant expression. And that's where we get being shaped by Scripture. So similarly, as the Anglican Church endured in the 1700s, there was a strand of Anglican churches who embraced a more Pentecostal or charismatic way of following Jesus, mixing that with the core commitment of being Protestant and consistently being uh, shaped by Scripture. Therefore, the second stream was birthed, being led by the Spirit. And at last, in the 1800s, there was a movement to bring the Anglican Church back as a whole, focused on the sacraments, which brought about the third stream, being strengthened by the sacraments. And so the three streams are held in tension in Anglican churches all over the world, including ours. But following Jesus in the Anglican way is one that consistently seeks what we call the middle way, the third way. We are offered a fresh way of following Jesus as Anglicans or the Anglican church because of the historic blending and construction of those three streams. One scholar says this about the three streams, that all three strands are grounded in the gospel. Each one extrapolates the gospel in a specific direction. No strand is dispensable. Other Christian bodies have often taken one strand to an extreme, but by God's grace, the Anglican tradition has held the streams in creative tension. The miracle of unity is a treasure worth keeping. And I think that is completely true. The miracle of unity of the streams is worth leaning into. It's worth learning about as we really pursue as a church body. What are we committed to? Who are we? What values are we founded upon? Last week, Ashley introduced our first stream, being shaped by Scripture. And I'll continue that stream this week, and for the rest of October, we'll preach on that. And in November, we'll be getting uh, into being led by the Spirit. And in December, we'll talk about being strengthened by the sacraments. So along with sermons each Sunday, we'll also be releasing a podcast each Wednesday that just goes into a little bit more depth, maybe a little bit more nerdy. You're welcome, Tyson, on what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. So please check that out. And if you haven't listened to Ashley's sermon last week, I'm just going to ask you as a brother and as one of your pastors, uh, go listen and go listen to that, that podcast this week as we learn together to be shaped by Scripture. And I think on that, I want to be uh, really honest up front with you guys this morning. I'm not going to pretend. Um, I love Scripture, like so much. Over the last 15 years of following Jesus, God has used this book to absolutely redo and transform my life in a lot of different ways. And I think I want to say that to you guys this morning because I want you to see my heart in talking about Shaped by Scripture, and I also want to acknowledge up front that I know a lot of us in this room and in our cities don't feel that way about Scripture. To just say it. We have such complicated relationships with the Bible. As Ashley talked about last week, we all think differently of it. We have different definitions. What is it? What does it do? What's it supposed to be? And while I absolutely have some complications in this thing, all in all, God has used Scripture more than anything else in my life of following Him to show me His heart, the world, and who He wants me to be. 
So when I was 16, my family had planned a ski trip. We had never gone skiing before, and we actually haven't been since, which is a little silly. Uh, but three months or four months, or some, I think three months before we went skiing, I blew out my ankle in summer football practice. And so when we went skiing, I was still learning to walk. Because of having reconstructive ankle surgery, I actually couldn't walk for a period of months, so it wasn't probably wise to start learning to ski while you still couldn't walk. So I went, uh, I went skiing, or we went to the mountains in Mammoth, California, and I sat in a coffee shop and felt bad for myself for three days. And so during that trip, um, something really remarkable happened. I read the Bible, and I don't say that ironically. My parents are in ministry. They're professional Christians. They love Jesus. They're actually like great human beings. They love me. They have taught me. They've shown me how to be a missional Christian and walk with him. So I grew up in that home, and I knew Jesus. I confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I was baptized. I did the whole thing. But the reality is there was a deep disconnect in what I was claiming to believe and how I was actually living. And I don't think I'm the only one that understands that. Am I right? So during those days, I read Galatians. And also, I guess this maybe is ironic. My parents had actually gotten me a study Bible for Christmas. So I'm like, oh, what is the thing? I'll read it some more. So I read Galatians in these days. And the thing is, I had known the story. Like, I've been in church for a long time. So I knew a lot of what happened in Galatians. And, but the wonderful thing was that day or those weeks, something different happened to me. God started making the pages of Scripture come alive to me. For the first time, I saw all these passages as real people and real stories. So in Galatians, Paul writes about um, having to call Peter out for not actually eating with the Gentiles, if you're familiar with that story. And for whatever reason, I remember reading it and actually seeing it start to come alive in my brain, like a movie or I'm reading any other book. And in Galatians 3, Paul writes, he says, Cursed is the one who cannot live up to the law. That's me. That's us. But he also said, Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And Jesus died on a cross made of wood, which is from a tree. And so although I knew what Jesus had done for me, something about reading Galatians that day on December 29th, 2008, saved my life. I was never the same. I haven't been the same since because I felt a new need and desire for Jesus that I had never known before. I began to understand that Scripture was given to us as a gift to know the story of what God was building in us, in his church, in the world. And so I read it through in high school. And again, many times in college, and I've read it a bunch since. I love it so much that I paid a bunch of money to get a theology degree after I had paid a bunch of money to get a liberal arts degree. So there it is. And y'all, I am so far from even scratching the surface of the gift that this book is to the people of God. So when Ashley put me on the schedule to preach on October 15th uh, on Shape by Scripture, I was a little excited, if you can imagine. Because learning to follow Jesus alongside of you all the last nine months now is such a great gift. And it's so worth pressing into the historical church of Jesus and understanding together how we are formed and shaped by Scripture. Amen. Last week, as Ashley shared the story of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, she mentioned how God had written them with his finger as a word for his people. Now, we don't actually believe that God wrote the whole Bible with his finger, literally, uh, but that was used for a picture of how God had used his word, had used his promise to form and shape a people from the very beginning until now. 
Ashley described the people of God as a word-bound people. We believe that the Bible tells the story of God's promise to humanity and to creation, that he would form a people to be a blessing to the world, a people who would partner with God in blessing the world and making it good. That promise is introduced to humanity from God to Abraham in Genesis 12. That promise is to form a people who would be, as Ashley said last week, a covenant-keeping, image-bearing people. The Bible tells that story throughout the Old Testament, and it shows how hard a time the people of God had to try to be that. They tried again and again to grab a hold of that promise to Abraham. The story of the Old Testament is one of Israel failing to be able to do that by themselves. So finally, at last, God sends a rescuer in Jesus who would be the fulfillment to that promise and allow the people of God to truly be that covenant-keeping, image-bearing people. And more on that in just a minute. So our text from this morning is Exodus 32, 1 through 14, which is the continuing story of the people of God receiving the Ten Commandments. So if you'll remember, Moses had been on the mountain with God for uh, how many days and how many nights? 40, exactly. So in that time, the people of Israel, according to our text this morning, uh, were just kicking it. They're waiting around, and obviously they were getting a bit antsy or a lot antsy. So in those 40 days, they get to the point of believing that Moses was actually probably dead. And then a group asks Aaron if they could build a god who they could worship since Moses is gone and the god, whatever god, led them out of Israel was probably gone too. Now we don't get too much detail on this text on how hard a press the Israelites put on Aaron or if he protested or whatnot. But what I'd love for us to do as a church would be willing to begin to think of these stories with a biblical imagination. So part of what it means to be shaped by Scripture is to dare to read Scripture with color, with feeling and emotions, asking deeper questions of the texts. While studying for, this, uh, for studying for this sermon, I was a bit surprised to find that a lot of scholars that I was reading had really strong opinions on the Israelites' idolatry. So many of them just couldn't believe how weak the Israelites' faith was to forget that all that God had done for them in 40 days. Because let's, let's remember, this is a people who had been slavery for a lot of years. And God had miraculously saved them, dramatically saved them. If anyone had a reason to remember God's work and praise him no matter what, it was this people. They had been saved and they owed a ton to their God. But Moses had been up there for 40 days, which is nearly six weeks. And if I'm being honest, I can change my mind about a lot of things in six weeks. Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And if I'm an Israelite hanging out in the desert without much hope or much direction, then I might get antsy. I might get frustrated. Let's put it this way. How many of you growing up went to Christian camps? whether it was a summer camp or a weekend retreat. Okay, a couple of you, so bear with me. After those weekends or after those weeks, do you remember the camp high? Oh, yeah. After some of those weekends, I came out of it and I was like, yo, I'm never going to cuss again. I'm going to be the best person in the world. I'm never going to argue with my brother again. There were some of those weekends I came out straight up ready to charge hell with a water pistol. I mean, we were in... But 
How long did it take you to forget those things and return to normal life? Not very long. Because the reality is that if I was still following Jesus, was the urgency I was after that camp, just six weeks later, it would have been a true miracle. And so I just want to note together this morning that six weeks is actually a really long time and plenty of time to forget when you don't feel like you have any hope. It's important to note that for the Israelites. I'm not trying to give them a pass. They absolutely messed up. They spit in the face of their God. But as we learn to read the Bible with a biblical imagination, as we learn to read it in color, as we are being formed and shaped by Scripture, what's important for us to know this morning is that we're not that different. Maybe we're not different at all. So Moses goes up to the mountain. He receives the commandments and the laws, and as he's basking in the glory of God, uh, the people are turning to idolatry. And what I really think is happening in this story is that they're desperately trying something to find something to put their hope in. So they've been, they, now they have been delivered in an amazing way from Egypt by Yahweh. But their great leader, Moses, had gone. So they didn't have a picture to look at. They had lost their way. They had nothing to grab onto. The tangible hope that they had in that man who walked with God, who told us what to do, was gone. So they turned to idolatry. And I think this story begs the question for us this morning, where do we really put our hope? And how long does it take us to forget what we claim to believe? And as I just said, I think just like the Israelites, it probably doesn't take very long, does it? A few weeks ago, uh, my daughter Edith got a stomach bug, and she's two. So although she can talk, and we think she might be a genius, uh, she's very hard to reason with. So she couldn't keep any food down, and at, at a lot of points, she was outright refusing to drink any liquids at all. So we had a really hard time keeping her hydrated, and twice she got so severely dehydrated that we had to bring her to the ER to get an IV. So the first time this happened, we ended up having to stay the night. And in the middle of the night, as Edith was sleeping on my chest, it's about 1.30 at this point, she was already frustrated and scared, uh, she pulls her IV out. So as you're, as you're imagining, it was bloody, it was messy, it was scary. Finally, the nurse comes in, we all calm down, Edith calms down, but at that point, she's screaming, she's crying, she's scared, I'm scared, I'm crying, I might be screaming. We're like, what is going on? <laughs> and finally, after the course of like an hour and a half, she calms down. She falls asleep on my chest again. And at 3 a.m. in the hospital, I'm wide awake, right? She's on my chest, I'm wide awake, and I'm looking at the ceiling, and I find myself like genuinely asking, God, where are you? Because I do not feel your presence right now. And God bless some of my friends in my community group know that this has been a struggle even for just a couple weeks of me feeling like that. It took me a couple of scary hours to forget where my hope lies. And so for the people of God... And for the people in this room, and for people in this world, the movements or the moments of temptation to forget where our hope lies are so vast. Are you following? For those of us who have genuine reasons to fear for the life of our children, because let me say this, I don't think there was a point the whole time that Edith was sick that I or Shelby was actually really scared about our daughter's life. It was just inconvenient and scary and expensive, right? 
But for those of us in this room who have had genuine reason to fear for our children's life, we have lost our children. We have lost loved ones. For the people in Gaza or Israel right now, there are a lot of reasons to forget. And so again, I think what I really want to ask this morning as we're on the same page is where do we put our hope? And does that have anything to do with us being shaped by Scripture? I'm going to be honest, I think it has a lot to do with it. So for the folks in Exodus who worship that cow instead of Yahweh, I think that they were putting their hope in Moses, that he would deliver them by God's direction and God's guidance. And so for us, we also have the temptation to put our hope in things that are tangible and seen. So for some of us, I mean, really, I'm just like, put it out there. For some of us, we put our hope in this. And as soon as we find out that the Bible is something different than what has been proposed to us in our lives or what we think it is, everything totally falls apart. It goes haywire. For some of us, uh, we put our hope in actual people, whether that's people around us in life or people in, in office or celebrities or whatever it is, right? And whether we know it or not yet, that will also absolutely fail us. At the end of our passage in Exodus, God says he wants to destroy the people of Israel, and Moses protests, quoting God's promise that he made to Abraham as a reason to hold off. And do we remember that promise? That God would form a people who would be a blessing to the world, and he could not do that if he destroyed them. He would form a people who were covenant-keeping and image-bearing, who would partner with God in making the world good. So thankfully, God relents. He doesn't destroy his people because he loves them, even in their darkest moments of idolatry, of adultery, of sin. He is committed to these people being formed by a promise, no matter what. And so what we believe is that that promise is made true in the coming of Jesus, the second person of the triune God who instituted a new vision for humanity and creation in the kingdom of God. What we believe is that Jesus gave us his spirit so that we could actually live into his kingdom vision and be a part of that people that were being formed and shaped by his promise to bless the world. Our hope is Jesus, full stop. Our hope is Jesus. We have hope in the vision that he cast for the world and that we get to be a part of in our everyday lives. Hebrews 6.19 says this, that we have this hope, a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, the forerunner on our behalf, has entered. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God to the world. And as Anglicans, to be shaped by Scripture is to always read this word with Jesus in focus. To read the stories of strife, the prayers of joy and agony, the human experience that are alive in these pages with a backdrop that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. The pain we feel in Scripture, in our lives, in the Word, will be made right because of Jesus being the fulfillment. And Lord, may you teach us that is true. May you show us that is true. May that be real to us every single day. Jesus, you are, you are, you are the fulfillment. Hallelujah.
So here's, here's what I propose to you all this morning. As we learn what it means to be a church committed to being shaped by Scripture, may we read Scripture with an honest and open posture, ready for the questions and the frustrations, knowing that our hope is found in Jesus and not in this book. I don't, I need you to hear me clearly. I believe with my whole heart that this is God-breathed and inspired and worthy for all correction and teaching, and that it is a great gift to his people, that he is forming us and aiming us. This is something that he is using to aim us towards being a people. But y'all, it is not God. Our hope is not here. It is in Jesus. Amen? So when we read it, we press into the tension, knowing that in the pages of this book is the story of God and a people who are becoming a covenant-bearing image or covenant-keeping image-bearing people. The wrestling is worth it because our hope is in Jesus. So if you have a hard time reading scripture on a daily or weekly, monthly or even yearly basis, here's what I'd propose to you this morning. Here's what I'd offer you this morning. A couple of thoughts. First of all, um, Maybe try reading the daily readings from the lectionary. So on the back of our bulletins is this week's daily readings. This is something that's been pre-assigned for every day of the year that all Anglicans around the world read. So try that this week. Take a chance. Read that this week, knowing that you're jumping right into the middle of the story. Like we were First Kings 6 this morning or something. So you're going to jump right in the middle of it. But that's good. That's what it's about. Jumping in and allowing God to let us feel the tension and the pain and the good as Jesus is the backdrop, as Jesus is our focus. You can read that this week knowing that thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other, millions of Anglicans are reading it all over the world, including me and Jamie and Ashley and I'm sure many others. Parker, I'd be willing to bet. Another option is to read a few chapters of the gospel every day, just to start. So during the, the civil rights movement, Dr. King taught the Ten Commandments of Nonviolence to anyone who was involved in the movement or went through that training. And the first commandment was to meditate daily on the teachings and the life of Jesus. Why? Because if it is true that Jesus is our hope, our vision for the kingdom, what is the kingdom again? The unhindered reign and rule of God then what is a better way to be shaped than to spend time reading about him and learning to pray with him so we can know him? May scripture shape you and me and us this week by making us see more of Jesus. May it aim us towards being people who are covenant-keeping and image-bearing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your word, your promise that you fulfill, that you are forming us. Thank you for scripture, that it is such a gift to show us that story and aim us towards the direction you're leading. I pray that for us here at Christ the King, that we would know more more of your heart. We would know your heart through scripture as we pray, as we seek your face, that you would show us more and more this week. In Jesus' name, amen.